The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, August the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It has been a while since we turned our gaze across the Atlantic, but the rumblings of next year's US presidential election are now growing louder. A New York Times poll this week showed that any attempt by the old Republican Party establishment to topple Donald Trump from his perch at the top of the party was doomed to failure. There's a long way to go yet, but as of now, Trump looks like an extremely hot favourite to contest the presidency for the third time in the row. And by my reckoning, that'll make him the first major party candidate since Franklin Roosevelt to achieve that feat. Meanwhile, Joe Biden seems equally probable to run for a second term for the Democrats, despite the fact that neither of these rather elderly gentlemen are spurring much enthusiasm among the electorate. But that seems to be the choice that's going to face them nevertheless. What is more interesting right now, I think, uh, are the swirls in the eddies of the highly polarised political environment in contemporary America. And the best way to understand that a lot of the time is not through party politics at all, but through the dynamics of the media. And that is why I'm delighted to welcome Claire Malone back to the show. The last time Claire was here, she was a political reporter for 538, the polling analysis site. But she has since moved up in the world and now she writes about media and politics for The New Yorker. Hi, Claire. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to see you again. There's so much to talk about, but as I mentioned there, not to sound too Martin McLuhan-ish about it, these kind of stories, all all of what we call politics stories, there is much media stories or even entertainment stories a lot of the time, aren't there? Oh, completely. I mean, American politics, I think poly- politics everywhere, but American politics in particular is basically just like TV, entertainment, particularly in the Trump era. I mean, I think like pre b- before Trump, there was always an element of this, but but politics was a lot more kind of ho-hum and policy-heavy. And now it's very, um, you know, who's the superstar who can kind of break through into, you know, through, frankly, an environment where a lot of people don't want to think about politics or read the news. So a lot of it's like how much a candidate can kind of break through into pop culture. So, yeah, media is politics and politics is media. So, and that's my beat. <laughs> <laughs> which brings us very swiftly to to Fox News, which has been in the news it, itself quite a lot lately. I, I seem to recall, actually, that Fox News's defence against a, a charge of defamation a couple of years ago was actually that it wasn't doing journalism at all, that its star presenters were entertainers rather than journalists. But that hasn't been a sufficient defence in recent months. No, I mean, I was down in Delaware in April at this big, was supposed to be a big defamation trial that was going to last for weeks and weeks, and we were going to see testimony from Rupert Murdoch and all the Fox stars. They'd even built like a tent over the back, you know, entrance of the court. And they settled in the final, you know, minutes of, of leading up to the actual trial beginning, in part because um, in pretrial motions, the judge had basically struck all their arguments as implausible because Fox had basically had basically had to admit that they had spread falsehoods. There was this really damning, you know, during discovery in the case, we just came across all these emails from uh, Fox executives, people in decision-making power, saying, like, we kind of know what we're saying is is hooey, but we're going to go ahead and do it. So um, Fox has had a really kind of awkward run of it over the past two or three years, basically since January 6th, when they sort of tried to um, 
not uh, cede the ground to Trump's lies about the elections and were sort of roundly punished for it by their audience. So now they're um, they're sort of thinking with their business heads, not their journalism heads for the most part, and have uh, sort of come back around to the Trump way of thinking, which we can get into a little bit more. Yeah, I find it fascinating because people who don't like what Fox does, of whom there are many, frequently, you know, charge it all to Rupert Murdoch's account that he's this Machiavellian figure who's leading it in certain directions. But an awful lot of the time, it seems to me that Fox itself is being led by what its audience wants and what its market needs to keep its market share. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have, like, Rupert Murdoch is certainly a, whatever you think of him, very good at business, right? He sort of has, especially in his in his heyday. I think a lot of people, though, have said that he's he's you know lost the thread a little bit um, in his uh, latter days, particularly with Fox, and particularly after Roger Ailes left Fox. A lot of people said that Roger Ailes, you know, although he was guilty of pretty gross sexual harassment and misconduct, he did kind of. Uh, have the magic touch when it came to knowing how to exert control over politics with Fox. And there, there is some sense among people who, who are at Fox, who observe Fox closely, that after Ailes left, um, Trump really kind of was able to, you know, w- worm his way into Fox and sort of like take over the network versus the network kind of having that, you know, <laughs> you know, to put it like in sort of, too, too stark of terms like the puppeteering, right? So I think that that there was this sort of structural problem at Fox after Ailes left. And Trump was, you know, like we were saying before, really able to break through, entertaining. All the cable networks kind of put him on constantly. And um, it's just been a real, uh, in some ways, it's not very, not very good for business because Fox, because of all these election lies, has had to pay just staggering amounts of money in um, settling defamation suits. They're still facing, you know, a a couple billion dollar defamation suit that's from another voting machine company that they um, probably libeled during the uh, 2020 election. So they're really, uh, you know, facing a lot of, what do they say, choppy waters. I mean, they're shareholder lawsuits saying that they've mismanaged the company. So it's it's not, it hasn't been a great way to... uh, navigate things necessarily. Yeah, it's it's almost it's like a cascade of misfortunes. I'm not sure if they're misfortunes because I think they brought them among themselves to, to to some extent, but the whole Dominion voting systems a fracas, which was really you know, various Fox presenters alleging that these systems had been hacked and manipulated by all manner of nefarious people, including dead Venezuelan dictators and all kinds of uh, all kinds of mad stuff. And it was quite clear, as you say, from the discovery documents that these high profile presenters who were putting out this stuff, they didn't believe any of it at all. Yeah, I mean, a couple of them, Maria Bartiromo was was one person who was kind of in the document sort of seemed like a true believer which was which was interesting in and of itself but yeah Tucker Carlson most prominently seemed to be calling Trump you know crazy nefarious basically um although going out on television every night and sort of propping him up and and Tucker Carlson was fired by the network you know still for sort of mysterious reasons but listen i'm sure uh his is talking about executives poorly in those emails didn't help. Um, but yeah, it's it's just been a real morass for them to to sort through. And and it's uh, the discovery was sort of a fascinating insight into how much Fox News is, despite their sort of public protestations, not really a journalistic entity. It truly is sort of pursuing 
business ends, and it's a good business. You know, cable is a dying business in America. I'm assuming in Ireland, too. Uh, But it's also, you know, profitable still, and they need to make profits, and they're good at doing that. Um, and it's it, it's it's sort of a expo, you know an exposure because an, an embarrassing exposure because I think Fox News has this really I mean to their credit energetic and vocal PR department that constantly puts out these things sort of defending the the, the so called journalistic integrity of Fox News and seeing all those those documents was really just like catching them with their pants down. I suppose here here in Ireland, this side of the Atlantic, we don't necessarily see Fox News as much. It's not readily available on our yeah. on our TV packages. And so even though, certainly I'm speaking personally here, but I know a lot of people feel this, we're much more swimming in the waters of American politics than we used to be because of the internet and social media and being able to read all the American media, Sorry. including the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Well, I, I, so, so, that includes the New Yorkers. There's good things in in there too. But we don't get, we just we just hear about or see in very short clips on Twitter or X, as we're supposed mm-hmm. to call it now, um, see these clips. So we don't get the full effect of it. But I've always been intrigued by what you just said there, which is cable TV is, is dying. These channels' numbers are shrinking. When you look at the actual viewing figures in the context of a country of 350 million people, they're actually relatively small. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, their influence seems disproportionately enormous. Why do you think that might be? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. And I mean, um, for one thing, for Fox News in particular, Fox's viewership is very old. Older voters are willing to pay, you know, they're called, you know, the carriage fees. So they're willing to pay the, you know, the, the whatever. I'm not sure what the current carriage fee for Fox News is, but it's pretty expensive versus all the other cable channels. So they're willing to fork out you know, money for the cable package and pay to watch their favorite hosts every night. Um, so they're propping up this this network that's an older audience and older people vote in America. So that's one thing. I mean, I think it's particularly influential, obviously, in the conservative side of things because it's just like uh, it's habitu- people are habituated to watching Fox News and it's infotainment, uh, although maybe misinfo- misinfotainment a lot of the times these days. And so I think, like on the conservative side of the side of things, older people watch it, and then younger conservatives. I think Fox News kind of drives the. Um, it's sort of like the think tank of uh, conservative politics now. So it used to be that Tucker kind of drove the conversation. Tucker has a guy. Tucker and Tucker's staff see something on Twitter, like a weird meme or a weird crime story. They stick the person on you know the nine o'clock hour. Then that person gets a ton of attention from the rest of the conservative ecosystem. So podcasts, right? You know, people like The Daily Wire, which is this consortium that's now in in Nashville, and it does YouTube videos and podcasts, and it's a bunch of these, um, you know, mostly right now it's a very anti-trans um, organization because that's sort of the wedge issue that they've they've picked out. Um, so so Tucker's sort of thoughts would trickle down to that podcast ecosystem and then sort of on and on, you know, the Instagram, the conservative Instagram influencers. So Fox, while it doesn't have a huge viewership, totally correct, it has like a thought leader viewership on the conservative side of things. And then on the liberal side of things, I think it's just this, speaking of habituated, I think liberal America in a lot of ways, starting with The Daily Show and Jon Stewart, who sort of, you know, made us all tune into Fox for the satire of it and to skewer Fox. I think that still that still exists, right? You you watch the clips on Twitter, 
if you're a liberal and you say, oh my God, how dumb, and on and on. So it's a very, because I think we're also a culture right now that's just obsessed with watching like six minute clips from YouTube or six minute clips on Twitter. And um, that's, I think, how the, you know, how the sausage is made. Because at the end of the day, Fox is sort of like, you know, you either stare at it and say like, right on, or you stare at it like mouth agape and say, oh my God, I can't believe this exists. It's very American. You know, we're all just like watching the TV. <laughs> yeah, quite quite old fashioned American. It's like when people talk about yeah. Trump as a, you know, as a phenomenon caused by the internet, which on one level is true, but on the other level, he's just, he's a, you know, he's a 1980s TV star. Very much so. I mean, Trump, someone once put it to me, I think, in a perfect way. Trump is the last remnant of the American monoculture, right? Like, I'm, how old am I? I'm 36. You know, my, whatever, you know, 20-year-old cousin has completely different stars than I do, and my parents have completely different obsessions than I do, but we're all obsessed with Trump, right? So if, if everyone is sort of a, you know, it's the Andy Warhol, now everyone has their 15 minutes of fame, but Trump has, you know, 15 years of fame, 50 years of fame. He's just the he's just a superstar and everyone wants to talk about him. I mean, it's it's funny. I think he's because he was off of Twitter and off of Facebook for a couple of years. He did recede in the background. And in America, we didn't hear his voice as much. He wasn't like constantly on the news. And now it's kind of percolating back up a bit. And I have to say, you know, I, I was laughing about this with my husband, it's like, he does say funny, crazy stuff. I mean, a lot of it is terrible and misinformation, but he just goes out there and it's like, it's a very, it's sort of like a, you're com- there's a compulsion that I think a lot of Americans feel left and right to sort of say, to want to talk about him. And it's really the monoculture's return. It's sort of an interesting, yeah. like, I sui mean, generis thing. I've, I've said this to some people here in, in Ireland, and they've looked at me in horror, and I, I've said, you know, he is entertaining. There is a cadence to his yeah. voice. There's a touch of borscht belt in there. Yeah, there's a touch of kind of comedy wise guy in there. But he's, you know, he's not taking himself seriously. It has a certain kind of, and this is where they look at me in horror, it has a certain kind of charm to it, you know? Trump rallies, I've... You know, I'm I'm thinking back to the first Trump rally I went to in 2016 because the experience was new to me. I got why people like to go. You know, you come in and you're in a big group of people. I mean, this is even pre-pandemic, right? So people, you know, people like to gather. There's like an event. You know, you come in, they're playing the national anthem. They're sort of like that that schmaltzy patriotic thing. Then he gets off the big plane. He deplanes. It's sort of grand. And then he gets on and he does like anywhere from 30 to like 90 minutes of his comedy set and he there were he in 2016 he was like reciting songs and it was just like call and response it was an act and it was very entertaining for people to watch i totally get why people like to go to them and i think even post pandemic you know uh people want to gather even more and the gathering you know, obviously in the in the early days of kind of coming out of, you know, pandemic isolation, that gathering had a certain middle finger quality to it. So it's just like people love an event, people love a show, and that's what he gives them. And in the process, he appears to have very successfully, as I said at the, the, the start of this conversation, stomped all over Ron DeSantis's head very quickly without even 
trying too hard. I mean, I remember about six months ago, I was talking to a, a journalist who was covering Ron DeSantis as he prepared for his campaign in Florida, Was had been in Florida for a while. And that person said to me, Ron DeSantis is a fake. He'll be found out. He's a stooge from the establishment who's, you know, signed up to certain principles. He's going to try to run to the right of Trump and it won't work. And uh, I think they were right. It's certainly looking they were right at the moment. It is. I mean, you know, he. so I feel like I've I've learned enough about... <laughs> American politics that, like, you know, don't count him out to the fat lady sings. Mm. But, yes, his campaign, I think, has been around for two months, if that, um, has, in the past couple of weeks, laid off something like 30 staffers. They're having money problems. They've sort of leaned into this, um, the only way to put it is sort of like this, they, their campaign ads and talking points have a very online quality to them. So it's the talking points. Yes, he's running to Trump's right. So it's the talking points that you'll see on certain portions of Twitter and YouTube. But for a lot of mainstream voters, the things that, you know, you can be talking about in those parts of the internet are not in the water of the rest of the world or the news ecosystem. They're about very, you know, they're very specific stories or very specific conspiracy theories that people might not know about. And um, I think, you know, DeSantis's campaign kind of has that patina to it. Um, and I also think, you know, he's out in, in Iowa in particular. Um, he's, he's not a particularly, he's a man lacking in social graces. See eating pudding with his fingers, which actually, honestly, is, is on the spectrum of things. We, like, we've, we've all done, we've all done that all, when necessary. We've all done it. I, yeah. <laughs> I think the weirdest like presidential eating story was the story of a few years ago of Amy Klobuchar eating um, salad with a comb. Yeah, that was that was kind of freaky. That was weird. Yeah. That's weird. But yeah, I mean, I think Ron DeSantis is not a particularly like. Um, I think he would be, you know, hard to have a, a drink with in a bar and. Um, and that's the kind of, like, I always refer to it as political pheromones, right? It's like, you like who you like, and people are kind of, like, not liking DeSantis. And there's also this, you know, the 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 rap in Florida was always Casey DeSantis, his wife, is, you know, the person who's supposed to humanize him. She was a former TV broadcaster, sort of very good on the stump. But then there's also these sort of, like, weird and sexist, but also sort of, uh, freighted marriage vibes of, oh, Casey's the one who's like, you know, pulling the strings. So the DeSantis campaign, and that's that's a line that's sort of been seeded in the right-wing media to, you know, the Trump-positive media to, to attack DeSantis. Sort of been this from-all-sides attack on, on DeSantis. He has made it easy for people, though. I mean, I saw this absolutely yeah. bizarre campaign video about trying to wrap Trump in an LGBT flag to, to kind of show DeSantis as the as the anti-woke candidate with all these weird homoerotic clips of Brad Pitt in Troy and yes. stuff. What and was it had going like on? A, it had like AI in it. They had like mm. AI images of Trump. Yes, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like the very weird, very online campaign that they're running. We'll see what happens. I mean... Like I'm, I'm very curious to see what their campaign relaunch is. Like what direction they go. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I saw in the past few days, apparently, like certain pro DeSantis camp people have been comparing it to when John McCain had sort of a comeback in the 2007 primaries, and they said like, you know, there could be a there could be a DeSantis comeback. And I think the I think the response to that is John McCain was a quite 
charming person, and <laughs> Ron DeSantis is not. But who knows? You know, I think I think the other thing that's sort of going against DeSantis a little bit is let's go back to Rupert Murdoch. I think Rupert Murdoch was really game to have a non-Trump Trump, i.e., DeSantis. And I remember um, the uh, uh, the night of the midterms on Fox News when the, when the Republicans were really just facing. Um, you know, surprising number of losses, a lot of the Fox News hosts were either explicitly or implicitly mentioning DeSantis's name as sort of like a star of the party. But now you see Rupert Murdoch kind of turning back to his old steady, which is Trump and sort of the primetime lineup being much more Trump positive. You know, after the after Tucker was fired, ratings for Fox really fell. Um, and they've been up, I think, in the past month. I, you know, I don't know off the top of my head if they're if they're you know beating every night MSNBC or whatever. But but they they are sort of back on, trending upwards again. And I think it's important for them to keep those ratings up, keep their audience happy. And DeSantis seems to not be making their audience happy. So his, I will say, maybe his, maybe DeSantis's um, honeymoon period with Rupert Murdoch is over, and that could be a big a big problem for him. I mean, beneath all the showbiz, which is obviously extremely important, there is a bit of actual politics there. DeSantis running to the right of Trump has been an opportunity for Trump. People kind of forget that back in 2016, Trump was seen by some Republican voters as a centrist, you know, obviously a, a rather unusual sort of a centrist, but somebody who was more middle of the road on things like Social mm-hmm. Security, Medicaid, <laughs> all those all, all those kinds of issues. And in a way, DeSantis has almost allowed Trump to, to, to remind us of, of that old Trump again for 2024, that, you know, that he, he won't go stomping all over people's old age pensions in order to balance the budget like like, like Paul Ryan would. Yeah, I think that's true. I think like, you know, Trump is like, I think Trump is just sort of painting DeSantis as weird. And that's and and mm. sort of like, I think that's the level of sophistication that you need. And I mean that both derisively and sort of just like, straightforwardly, like you, you don't need a lot of Trump can kind of just label him as weird and like too you know, a little bit too much and you can get away with it. Because I'll also say Trump has gotten much more rightward leading obviously, since he he ran in the 2016 primaries. I mean, back then he was sort of like, there was like a wishy-washy Trump record on abortion. And obviously now, um, because of uh, appointments that he made to the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So, I mean, like, Trump now kind of can um, very plausibly say to the, you know, rock-rib conservatives, as we always say, that he's that he's their guy and you don't really need this imposter from from... Uh, the other guy from Florida, that he's he's like not the right flavor of um, of governing. And I think it's just like a it's sort of an interesting battle of, uh, of yeah, of flavors, just different, slightly different flavors of very right wing Republican, because I think we have to we, we can't forget that Trump has really morphed over time into something much more. He's still populist, but he's certainly like on the very rightward leaning spectrum. American ideology. Hold that thought for a moment. I just mentioned to our our listeners that Claire, like I do, works for a subscription-based revenue model of a publication, The New Yorker. I'm a a subscriber (laughs) to that. I'm not going to tell our listeners to subscribe to The New Yorker, although I must say I find my one worthwhile. But I am going to suggest that if you don't already subscribe to irishtimes.com, now is the time. Uh, Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where there's lots of good deals available. We'll be back after this. 
And you're very welcome back. Claire is still here with me. We were talking a lot about Fox News and Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis there. Claire, there is a sort of a mirroring projection kind of a process that seems to have taken place in American media and seems to get more and more extreme where the, the centre ground has been hollowed out. If it ever existed, it's definitely been hollowed out over the last 10 years or so. And particularly during the Trump presidency, partly because of Trump identifying the media as his ideological enemy. Many organizations or some organizations anyway kind of grabbed that as a as a brand that mm-hmm. they that they were happy to own. I'm not sure whether the long-term benefits of it um have proved to be the case. And one of those media brands is CNN, which is a kind of a huge legacy media uh industry in the United States that's the the granddaddy of 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 cable news in a way and seemed to drift quite far to one side of the ideological spectrum. Is that fair during the Trump years? You know, it's a hard question. I think I think what I would say is that in America, the media became part of the story. The media became politicized by Trump. And CNN leaned into the battle for the free press in a way that became, among some anchors, quite... Theatrical. So, you know, there was a Jim Acosta, who was a White House reporter, was was sort of very performatively, I think a lot of people would say, and I would be one of those people, um, you know, kind of making scenes at Trump White House press conferences with with good cause, you know, but but also in this way that I think read to a lot of people as um, attention seeking. I think CNN would say back, and I think they're they're right about this, that uh, it's the responsibility of the media to call lies lies, to do all that stuff that we all know, right? Like, you know, we're on the side of truth and we're going to say when Trump lies and it's not particularly politis- political to say uh, this guy is uh, perpetrating a massive fraud when he says that he, um, you know, won the 2020 election and he's, you know, misleading a bunch of people into thinking that that actually happened. That is obviously terrible and bad. Um, but I do think the tone of CNN was was much more dramatic, dramatically leaning into that, like, pro-journalism thing. And it was good for ratings, right? It, it got, I mean, you know, it got the hashtag resistance to make it their network of choice. I think they were also, there was also a certain amount of organizational guilt within the organization that they had spent so much time in 2016 with their cameras pointed at Trump gave him a lot of free airtime. And so I think genuinely the journalists in that organization wanted to reverse course, right? And and so not reverse course, but to, to really um, go hard on this unprecedented presidency. Um, but I do think it was, it made them part of, because now in America, everything is political. I mean, like, like name an inanimate object and I'll tell you what political party it belongs to. And so I think CNN just became part of that and became part of associated with the resistance. And then when they, uh, when this, this big merger happened where their corporate ownership changed and they, um, they had a new, a new boss and the new boss's boss or the new boss's financier kind of said, I think CNN should be more like Fox news. I think they should go back to quote unquote real journalism then everyone sort of freaked out and said, what do you mean? We have been doing real journalism. And it's and it started this debate that's messy beyond belief in America about what does it mean to have centrist news? Are you sort of, um, 
does that mean that you're pulling punches on Republicans? And um, it's just, it's really sort of, um, I'm monologuing for a second here, but like, it's really just a morass that I think is kind of a no-win situation for the media. A friend just texted me this morning a, 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 a piece in the Washington Post uh, about how an, a staggering number of Americans are just completely opting out of news. And I kind of think that it's because it's just, it's the new news channel you choose to listen to is politicized. Are you an NPR listener? You're a liberal. Are you a CNN viewer now? You're probably a liberal, but maybe you're trying to like be a centrist. Are you a Fox viewer? Are you MSNBC? I mean, it's all very, I think, exhausting for people and bad for us that people are exhausted by the news. I mean, especially for the New Yorker, because like we need you to read 20,000 words <laughs> and you can't, you can't be exhausted doing that. Yeah, it's hard to do that on the phone, I find, actually, even 20,000 words. But but <laughs> yeah. having said all that, and it's very interesting because this attempt by CNN to reposition itself back towards the centre or whatever it was, ended up being a complete disaster. I think largely because it was really badly implemented uh, and some very bad decisions were made, chief amongst them a decision to, to hold a sort of a town hall debate with Trump, which essentially turned into a kind of a Trump rally where CNN lost control of the, the message. But there were there were other problems with, with stars as well. But I have to say, looking at CNN, and I get all these points that these critiques that people make of the, you know, so-called, you know, self-described objective centrist media, you know, you have to call things out, you have to call a lie a lie. You have to do proper journalism and reporting on that. But there was far too much what what we in this side of the Atlantic would call editorialising going on on CNN, it, it, it seemed to me, that it was wearing its heart on its sleeve just far too much. It definitely, yes, it definitely had that that vibe. And you know, it's funny, I think one of the, one of the best political interviewers in America is actually an Australian, Jonathan Swan, hmm. uh, who, who's now at the New York Times, in part because I think there's this tradition... This, it's kind of like trickle down from the BBC, but it's in Ireland, it's in Australia, of just a certain kind of interviewing culture that is very straightforward and aggressive, politely aggressive. And I think um, in some ways that's not – there are certainly interviewers, there are certainly tough interviewers on American TV. I'm not saying that. But there is a certain um, – like, yeah, grandstanding culture that exists on cable television because that gets ratings. And I think, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're an executive trying to think about how you should rejigger CNN, I might say that, like, looking to some of these, you know, uh, more politely aggressive interviewing tactics that exist in, <laughs> in Europe um, is probably a good way to go. But I, I do think it was a very American style of... Um, but you might be you might be wrong as well. I mean, I'd, I'd personally like to see that, and you might personally like to see that. But you know, the market doesn't lie, and the market dictates this in the end, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's the it's the talking heads, you know, crossfire thing of like what gets your clip viewed, what gets you know people are going to view your program, but what gets your program talked about and clipped on other news programs and clipped on Twitter? It's probably like you know, I think for CNN, they found that hosts. Fact-checking, rightly so, certain politicians and then getting into these sort of confrontations was they were getting powerful feedback from their audience. Um, But I do think it has in the long run this really complicated effect on how um, your audience views the journalist. Because obviously, like, you know, with journalism, like we don't we don't take any 
certification exam where you know we don't have any license that can expire or be taken away. The only thing we have is our, you know, the audience trust or the readership's trust. And if you lose that, it's a really difficult and slippery thing to gain it back. And you might not gain, you know, there's some people that you might lose forever. And I think that's the problem that America is seeing. And I think it's, I mean, it's something that started before Trump, certainly, but obviously Trump accelerated it in a way that's just like, I don't think the, the, it can be overstated how corrosive its effects have been on journalism as, as a institution in America, but like American society in general. I mean, the other thing that, that has been happening at the same time, I mean, I think you're right. I think the, the cable TV phenomenon, you know, predates the internet. But the arrival of, you know, the world in your phone, in your pocket, and the way of communicating with everybody through through social media platforms has transformed, among many other things, has transformed uh, journalism. And in America, it seems to me, like in other places too, there have been a, a few big winners and a lot of much smaller losers. So you now have had a kind of a a winnowing out of all that kind of local journalism, regional journalism, even small city journalism that used to exist. It's all been replaced. There's now a few big beasts in the in the jungle. And it does seem to me that you end up in a, you've ended up in a situation in the United States where politically the country is split almost down the middle, not far off down the middle anyway, into, into two halves. But in media have this imbalance where most of the big, what you might call legitimate media organisations, like the New York Times, who have a, a thousand people in their newsroom, have reporters who go to things, they're on the liberal side of the equation. And you can understand why people on the other side who look at and criticise, with justification or otherwise, things like coverage of the Hunter Biden story, or whether mm-hmm. Joe Biden is going to be able to tie his own shoelaces in two years' time, they kind of they they think they're getting a raw deal from what's been presented to them traditionally as as proper journalism. Yeah, I mean I think American news has in addition to what you you outlined there just like the the hollowing out of local news, it, it the media has a class problem. So, you know, the New Yorker's newsroom, the New York Times's newsroom, the Washington Post newsroom is filled with people like me who are college educated people who hang out with other college educated people and inevitably swim in an urban liberal milieu. So while I think we all do our best and often a good job of reporting the facts and blah, 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 inevitably, like I think it's hard to escape the fact that news stories have points of view oftentimes and readers are generally pretty smart about sniffing those out and understanding if someone isn't giving what they see as, um, you know, do heft to um, a certain point of view. I think the, I mean... Maybe this takes us to the Hunter Biden <laughs> laptop story, which which is just, I think, I was thinking about this last night. It's just like the, per, like, in some ways you couldn't make up the the weird movie storyline that is the Hunter Biden laptop story and what happened with it, which is, you know, just like the highlight points are like it, it um, what really set it off is, you know, Hunter Biden is on a unfortunate um spree for a few years of of really bad drug use, takes his computer into the shop in Delaware for fixing, never picks it back up again, and whatever. Lo and behold, through various ways, it finds that computer with a lot of bad images and messages, finds its way to this, you know, uh, basically to Trump's um, opposition research team right there. And it it makes its way onto the New York Post. The New York Post posts it on Twitter. Twitter, which has this institutional, um, you know, flashback to what happened when Hillary's emails were 
leaked and it, you know, we we unwittingly as journalists and Twitter and Facebook helped spread, you know, a foreign government's hacking materials. Twitter said, okay, we have to block this New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop story because we don't want to relive the past. The New York Post cries censorship. The right-wing media cries censorship, perhaps correctly, I think correctly in retrospect, that, that, that it was... It was not a story that should have been flagged. And then it just becomes years, literal years. I mean, this started in 2020 and it's 2023. Just years of um, Hunter Biden as proxy for Joe Biden. And I think, unfortunately for Joe Biden, his son has made a lot of really questionable decisions. And I'm not talking about his drug use or, or you know, his uh, hiring of sex workers. I'm talking about the fact that, you know, what when Trump talks about Hunter Biden's um, not-so-great-looking uh, deals with, you know, Ukrainian energy companies, he's got a point about soft corruption. And even if Joe Biden didn't do anything wrong, it's still not a good look. And so I think it's this, it's this weird mixture of genuine, yes, there's something... There's something not right about that. There's something you can call it. So, I'm calling it soft corruption because it's like, you know, that that, you know, the relationships, uh, you know, gray area. But it doesn't mean just because Hunter Biden did something that is distasteful and did something actually illegal, which is not pay his taxes for a couple of years, doesn't mean that Joe Biden did anything wrong. But it's turned into this odd proxy battle. But the implication is there's still this talk about, you know, the Biden crime family that you'll get here in right wing media and yeah. all that kind of stuff. They haven't found it there there, you know, um, on any of that, have they? They haven't found a connection. They've just they have found, when I say just, it's not it, it's I think it's quite serious. I agree with you. They have found him trading on his family name to make millions of dollars from pretty dubious Correct. foreign businesses. Yeah. Yes. And in that way he is uh, following in the, you know, long line of um, stories in American politics about siblings and family members of presidents who do bad things and, you know, are uh, and and there's sort of a, the, the, the difference is, you know, like I think there was a Carter family member, Bill Clinton's stepbrother, you know, did some illegal things. But the, I think the difference is the media environment of the time. Those were still scandals. Those were still political stories, certainly. But they weren't like bring down a presidency stories. And um, I think now it's just because because American media on the right wing is so seeded with conspiracy theories, it makes the people consuming right wing media just have an, a completely different understanding of what's happening. And then on the left... You just tune it out, right? So you might not be anything that has to do with Hunter Biden. You might say, "Ugh, conspiracy theory," right? So you're so you're almost so there's almost like this negative effect on like reading actual factual news about the Hunter Biden story because people have this 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 association with it as conspiracy laden, or they fully buy into the conspiracy and they want to burrow into it even even more. So I actually think both sides of the equation, it's just like this weird, um, more negative on the, on the conspiracy-laden side of things. But I also think that it, there's a certain amount of um, just, you know, on the liberal side, knee-jerk from the gut, maybe defense of what he did. Although I think as, as, as his, you know, plea deal comes to light, People, are, people might become more aware that, like, yeah, Hunter Biden did evade taxes, blah, blah, blah. There were some things going on. Um, 
but it's just this sort of odd litmus test about how you um, consume media and in what vector of American media you're living in. So that doesn't really bode well for this kind of extraordinary scenario which is looming now next year, isn't it, where one of the presidential candidates when the election is in full swing is going to be in a courtroom defending himself, or maybe multiple courtrooms, we don't we don't yeah. really know yet, and how the hell that's going to play out and, and, and how people interpret it or understand it. Yeah, you know, I think one big media literacy problem that American news consumers face and American journalists face is not all of us are courts reporters, right? And there's a lack of nuanced understanding of how the legal cases unfold, how the court system works. And um, so I think what we're seeing, so just to start with, I think it's going to be a, a, night, <laughs> a nightmare to cover. And I think journalists have to familiarize themselves. I, I'm sort of thinking about this right now of of how to um, have calm and measured coverage of the American court system and how cases unfold because it can be complicated. Cases can be delayed for reasons that are, um, you know, purely logistical or a judge can have questions and delay a hearing for perfectly reasonable reasons, even if they are a Trump appointee, right? But right now in the media environment, any delay that happens with a court case inevitably becomes a sort of splashy headline of Trump-appointed judge delays, you know, hearing or whatever it might be. Trump-appointed prosecutor does such and such. And I think we really have to pull back if we're if we want to be thoughtful and measured about the coverage. We really do have to, you know, be a bit more um, precise about how we are communicating to readers the ins and outs of a court case. Now, with Trump, there's lots of sort of um, funny arguments that his legal team is making about, well, he can't he can't do this trial at the date you set because he's actually running for president and it's going to interfere with it, with his presidential campaign if he has to go sit at this trial. That <laughs> is very funny and also a real thing that we will have to grapple with uh, and so I think there's going to be a lot of campaign reporters, you know, sitting outside courtrooms at, you know, 4 a.m. waiting for a spot to to get inside the courtroom and see, you know, potentially Trump during the camp during the election campaign, you know, whatever, sit sit uh, with his lawyers in front of a judge. It's just a real um, it's a real spectacle making um Seen, and I don't think it's particularly great to have that be a presidential campaign. Do, do you know what? Do you know what might help though with getting some of that calm, reflective, knowledgeable mm-hmm. coverage that you're talking about? Is if Elon Musk succeeds in his apparent uh, target of destroying Twitter within 12 months. <laughs> it's true. There'll be <laughs> there'll be less uh, the, the 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 game of telephone will go. Much much more slowly. Yes, is this our is this our cue to talk about? Well, I was listening to I was listening, I was listening to your your colleagues on the on the New Yorker's politics podcast talking about talking about Elon Musk's and and X, which we are, we are now not going to call it. Um, and one of them was suggesting that that this is a deliberate ideological project as opposed to some kind of weird internal psychodrama by a billionaire. Uh, it's probably a bit of both, but I thought it was interesting that, that, he, that he had basically just got it in his head that he was going to destroy wokeism and this was his instrument by which he was going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, like, the theory out there 
I mean, obviously, we all know that he didn't, he wanted to buy it, and then he didn't want to buy it, and then he was forced to buy it, which is, again, you know, funny. Uh, So I am willing to entertain the theory that, like, he is purposefully, you know, lighting the Viking ship on fire and, like, setting it off into the ocean. Maybe he is. Of course, it's not all his money, so it might actually make financial sense for him to burn the other people's money and just get the hell out of it. Yeah, I mean, I I will say Twitter has taken a real toll on his, you know, it's taken a toll on the Tesla stock and therefore his, you know, his billionaire, his whatever rank of billionaire he is. Um, I do genuinely believe, though, that that Musk has this true ideological desire to, I mean, influence American politics, right? Influence American culture. And he saw it as a ready-made vehicle for his, for promoting his point of view. And I think how, like, you know, I think Twitter is a worse user experience. I I actually don't remember the last time I tweeted and I used to be on the platform quite a lot. And I, I don't really use social media as much in general anymore, which is sort of an interesting trickle down effect. Do you find that helps? Um, Do you find you have a better life without it? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 um, well, I spend a lot more time on the phone and I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn the reporter's friend is LinkedIn. That's that's where it's really at. Um, but I think, like, he's he is succeeding in the sense that we are all talking about it. We are, like, there are certain um, accounts and, uh, like, you know, corners of the internet that have found a sort of happy home on the new Twitter. And... I am. I. I genuinely cannot speak to, to to where this man's head is, but like, I do think he has a real ideological desire to influence American politics, and whether that's like burning down the former plaything of the liberal elites, or he doesn't mean to burn it down. He means to build up the you know anti woke sentiment. It's all having the same effect, which is um, completely uh, ravaging a a a. Twitter, I guess it's now X. <laughs> it's funny, you know. You say you're not. We're, we're calling it Twitter. I, I think I agree, but like, I think the New York Times and certain papers here are trying to figure out how what to call it. And so far, everyone's calling it Twitter. I think, but it's like it's like when Facebook renamed itself Meta, hmm. and all the news articles at the beginning had to be Meta, parens, formerly Facebook. You know, so it's like, what are we gonna? What's the, what's even the? What are the copy editors of America? I'm I'm sure they they have some secret conclave somewhere where they sort this out and then that information filters down to lowly reporters like like you and me. We'll wait for the white smoke. Listen, one one last question and it it kind of is, it does relate, I think, to this America through a media lens question. I mean, you you mentioned earlier you're, you're 36. It looks like the two guys who are going to run for president next year are both old enough to be your grandfather. Do, does that, not, how much concern does that cause people? I look at other stories, Mitch McConnell freezing yeah. in the middle of an interview last yeah. week, Diane Feinstein, I mean, God forbid, looking half dead, being wheeled around yeah. into votes and, and, and stuff. She's in her 90s now. There's, there's something a bit wrong there. It's very sobering. I mean, I mean, it's, there are, jo- you know, it's, I think the jokes that people make on Twitter sort of like degrade their souls when you, when you sort of are making fun, fun of someone who's having like an obvious neurological event. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a disturbing thing. I mean, it's the um, the backbenching of uh, political talent in their 
30s, 40s, and 50s is is sort of extraordinary in America. Um, and it's um, in some ways hard to explain, and in some ways not. I mean, I think you're sort you're sort of seeing like the um, the the pattern, the stranglehold of establishment uh, figures on American politics, and their their sort of their canny ability to sort of go with the flow and go with the tides and court the mainstream voters um, means that like younger politicians are often more quote unquote extreme. And sort of uh, maybe not as palatable to, um, you know, like like let's take AOC right and the Squad, which I think everyone is familiar with. Like mm. th- they're not particularly palatable um, to a large proportion of the voting Democratic uh, Party membership, and you know I think they're vo- voting being the operative word, i.e., older um, and more uh, entrenched in, in a certain kind of um, belief about where the party should be. But anyway, I think that's, I think it's really, I think that that generational divide, the kind of radicalization that I think things like the financial crisis of 2008 uh, had on sort of younger people's politics on the democratic side has made the, the transference of leadership a little bit more um, difficult, but I think it's, it's just become, I mean, it's an entrenched problem on both sides, and I—it's a. But it seems to be a particularly American problem. I understand the way that seniority yeah. is is regarded as very important in both houses of of Congress, and that can kind of contribute. But to see it in the presidency, because well, you just look that you know France, Emmanuel Macron is in his forties, Rishi Sunak in the UK is in his forties, Arafat Ali, Arafat Adkar, he's in his forties. You know that they're all in generally in the kinds of ages that you would expect people who are in difficult top jobs to be. And then here we have somebody who's in his eighties and somebody who soon will be uh, competing for the biggest job in America. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about it now, and it's like I'd want to ask a political scientist about this because this is this is where Claire Malone speaks out of one side of her mouth, but. I assume that there's there is some, um, at least in you know, the UK in particular. I'm thinking about in Ireland, like the idea of um, more parliamentary systems at play and sort of the promotion of uh, women, people of color, younger people is is like when there's a when it's more of a back of a backroom deal or however you want to put it, that does lead to perhaps more. Um, organizational forethought as to what the like what the future needs. Whereas in American politics, it's like you know, it's a knife fight to get like you know the donors. So you gotta like you gotta fly to the donor retreat in Miami, or you gotta fly to New York and go to every single corporate law firm and and you know hit up these guys for you know whatever your ten thousand dollar checks and and you need connections for that. And you have connections when you're older and you've been more established. So it's really hard for a young person to uh, to go in and say like, "Yep, I know exactly who to call to get you know however much money, and I know exactly who who to call to get to to run my pack to spend you know to carpet bomb this ad market with like tens of millions of dollars." I mean, I just think it, it a lot of it comes back to just the the saturation of money in American politics and how it's really like. Um, you need connections for that and you can't mm. avoid that. And it also is what leads to, you know, a certain kind of, in a, in a pretty diverse country, it's what leads to a certain kind of person um, becoming the politician. And I think I think our politicians are getting more racially diverse. There are more women, but it's also people who come from, a lot of times, people who come from corporate backgrounds, lawyers, a certain type of person who has access to those um those those money bags 
Mm. So it probably, but I, I genuinely am it, like, it would be interesting to, I'm sure there's lots of, you know, papers out there on this, but like whether or not it's, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of system versus a parliamentary system is, is what lies at the root of the problem. I said that was my last question, but I was lying. This is my last question. Um, okay. Is it going to be as mad in 2024 as it was in 2020? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I, 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 uh, I should be serious about that. Yes, I think it will be. I think the, what, what will be... I think there's a certain amount of dread about the 2024 election in part because... And I, dread, I mean, like, uh, a, an understanding of what the quote unquote storylines will be about what the attacks will be a sort of like depressingly familiar march of partisanship and like people believing in conspiracy theories. Um, I do not wish another January 6th, obviously like I wish for a, an election that is, that is free from violence. But the fact that that is now a thing that you have to think about and say is quite depressing. So I think there's a certain amount of, um, you know, it's not going to be a particularly fun one to cover. Uh, that's for sure. On that cheerful note, we'll leave it there. <laughs> thank Claire Malone, thank you very much for, for joining us again. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And that's it from us for today. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. Uh, we're going to be back in your feeds very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thank you for listening. 